Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you focus too far in front of you, you won't see the shiny thing at the corner of your eye. Tim Minchin. Hello, welcome to Just Make the Thing, a podcast for people who want to start a thing and keep on making it. My name is Claire Tonti, and this week I'm joined by Eve Blake. That's Eve with a Y. Gosh, this girl is brilliant. She, I think, is a real up-and-coming star in musical theatre writing. She does so many things and so many projects. She's a singer, a musician. She's also writing a musical currently about fangirls, and I'll let her share more about it in this interview. She's just bubbling over with personality and with vibrance and with energy and with creativity. And she embodies everything I think this show is about. Getting the work done. Just get the work done. Write 39 pages and then mine for the gold. Don't stop until your creativity is satisfied. Be curious. Be energetic and rigorous with your creativity, but don't let yourself be boxed in. Everything was made by someone, even music or the great works of literature. It's all made up. None of it matters as much as we think, and yet all of it matters if we let it. So go out there and make your thing. And I reckon if you're not inspired after hearing Eve Blake talk, I don't know how you could not be. Her musical, Fangirls, is coming out in September Go grab yourself a ticket. Do yourself a favor if you can, if you're in Queensland or in Sydney, and go follow her on Instagram. I think she might be my new spirit animal. All right, here we are, Eve Blake on Just Make the Thing. We're here, and you're on Just Make the Thing. Yay, it's nice to be here. Oh, gosh. I just thought you were the biggest bloody legend in your sparkly outfit at the TED conference when you did your talk on fangirls. Thank you so much for it. Oh, Claire, thank you. Honestly, the pleasure was mine. Oh, well, it was so brilliant and I have so many questions. My first one, though, is how are you going in life as a person that makes your living being creative? Oh, my gosh. It's funny that you ask that because I just... Well, it's a funny little moment. So in a month's time, we begin rehearsals for Fangirls, which is a musical I've written. And that's mostly what I do is be a writer. So just like sit on my butt a lot. But it turns out like to be in a musical, you have to learn to dance, Claire. Um, (laughs) But also, funnily enough, in March this year, I broke two bones in my ankle. And then eight weeks later, I broke my third metatarsal, which is like a bone under your toe. So... I've got four weeks to A, learn how to dance, but B, do like such intense physio that I can jump and leap with the rest of them in four weeks time. So honestly, this is a really weird month for me, right? Because I have to continue writing, but I also have to build all this muscle. And so it's just the most active I've ever been. I just ate a protein bar that tasted (laughs) like death. 
Um, that's how I'm going. Excellent. Welcome to my world. My husband's really into the old protein, so I try. But Is he? Yes. How did you do the breaking of your toe and related things? Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, I'm going to dub someone in. So Love it. One of my best friends is called Thomas Wilson White. Everyone check him out. He's an incredible writer and director um, and he works in film. He's amazing. And he and I are co-writing a film together. We've been commissioned to co-write it and we were sort of spending this five days together doing this feverish go at our first draft. And we'd just gotten really delirious around each other and I was carrying six glasses from my bedroom. He was staying at my house. I was saying, carrying six glasses from my bedroom downstairs, which he shamed me into bringing downstairs. He's like, that's disgusting. Take them down. So I did. And as I was walking down the stairs, he just looked at me and licked his lips in this stupid way that really wouldn't be funny to anyone else. But I thought it was so funny that I laughed so hard. I fell down the stairs um, and the glasses smashed everywhere. And he's immediately like, oh my gosh, are you bleeding? Are you okay? I'm still laughing so hard. I think I'm going to piss my pants. And then I was like, oh, I have to go to the emergency room. So yeah, I broke two bones in my ankle. And then I did my third metatarsal. I want people to know about this. So my physio was like, what you need to do is get up on the balls of your feet. And once you can do that and you can hold it up, that's when you know that you're fighting fit and you're ready to start dance classes. And I finally got up there and it turns out that in my bad foot, uh, my bone density had gotten lower from just like being in a moon boot. So that those bones were like chalk and one of them just went as soon as I went up. Can you imagine? I was in a bar class. And I was like, oh, that's a bit awkward. And then I went to physio. And actually, I had this injury when I did my TED Talk and didn't know. I was like, why is this foot just a bit swollen and weird? Um, Probs my injury. But then I went to my physio and they're like, no, you need another x-ray. You've, oops, you've done it again. Britney style. Yeah. Oh, mate. Well, you know, you're suffering for your art and jokes. And I appreciate (laughs) it. I am there for it. Ah, thanks, Claire. I appreciate that. No worries. No worries. All right. I have so many things to ask you because you strike me as someone that is literally buzzing with creativity and enthusiasm to everything you do because you're also a singer and a musical composer and a writer as well. And I hazard a guess that you are actually probably quite naturally gifted at the old dance moves because I've deep dived into your YouTube and in your performances, you can see you've got the rhythm. Um, well, we got to manage, Claire, we got to manage expectations. People are going to come see this show and look, I've, I can promise nothing. <laughs> All right, I won't. Okay, uh, you could do other things and you maybe could dance, but you probably can. Anyway, I wanted to start by asking you how you landed in writing first and foremost. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think it possibly comes from being like an only child who had to entertain herself a lot as a kid. I mean, okay, to be fair, I've got a, a brother from another mother, but he's 13 years older. So I've, I effectively grew up on my own. And yeah, so every time I wanted to entertain myself, it was just me and my imagination. Um, and then I think when I was a teenager, when I was a kid and a teenager, I knew that like movies and plays and stories really mattered to me. And I knew I really cared. I knew I cared about it, but I couldn't quite figure out how. So for a while, maybe until I was 18, I thought maybe I wanted to be an actor, but something about that didn't ever make exact sense. Cause I, 
I loved the idea of like telling stories through acting, but it kind of stressed me out how a lot of uh, being an actor was going to auditions and getting rejected all the time. And um, so much of it was about um, how you appear, you know, and, and people evaluating your appearance. And then I figured out, no, wait a second, I want to make up the stories. So then from there on, I've just been, I mean, I guess I've been writing since I was probably 16 or so started out as plays and then I kind of got interested in more performance arty things. I, I did um, when I was 19 until I was about 23. I made a bunch of different one-woman shows based on collecting submissions from strangers online, which then like I would ask people online to answer all of these questions. I think for one show it was like, what's something you've never said out loud? And then I would turn what people sent me into songs and into like this kind of one hour performance. So yeah, that's, that's how I, I got started. And then I just kind of have continued rolling in lots of different directions. Mm. How did you, um, I want to ask you about then, which is obviously one of your one woman shows. Oh, she's done her homework. <laughs> Oh, Correct. she's done a Google. I've, I've done it. I've done a Googs. Um, and that's a show about who do they – you asked people um, with an interactive website yeah. who they feel they used to be, which I think is such an interesting like premise to begin with. Where did you find your audience to come along to your shows? Had you started building oh, an audience? This is – sorry, I'm just loving how much of a throwback this is. How did I find my audience for that mm. show? Oh, good mm. question. Okay, well – so that show, yeah, you're right. The question was asking people, who do you feel you used to be? And the trick of that question was that like people tended to approach it in kind of three different ways. Either they go, oh, I've got a really funny story that about something silly I did when I was younger to kind of go for like the comedic approach. Um, and some people would go like, wow, you know, like I've really changed a lot. And they would, they would tell a story that pointed out contrast. And then some people would respond with a kind of deep nostalgia. Like I used to have this thing and I have lost that. So it was, it was really, really interesting. And I think in terms of finding an audience, I mean, the good thing about it is the whole premise begins online. So anyone who interacted, uh, I guess was kind of incentivized to come, but like, honestly, I made that show when I was 19 or 20. And I think I, I was in London as well. I moved to London I think I just kind of got a lot of friends in the independent theatre scene to come along and bring a mate, and then those mates brought more mates, and it was kind of organic. It was like a bit of a snowball. The first venue that I did that in, I think, only had like 80 seats. So at the beginning, it wasn't too hard to pack that show out. What was really exciting was that the response to that first show was really positive. And so then it kind of just kept returning to London. And I think in the first year I did it, it came out in February and it came back to different venues six times that year. So it's a good question, but actually I realised answering it, I don't have a really particular answer. I guess people who told people who told people. Mm, so would you think that possibly it's because it's good and people love to share and tell about things that are good, they like to feel smug? <laughs> tell their friends uh, I mean I'd love that'd be nice I'd like to hope so um yeah look I think also I think people did connect to that show and they did really enjoy it but I think maybe it was a mixture on stage of that silliness but also really heartbreaking and, and really hardcore stuff that people sent in so it mm -hmm. I think it attracted a really broad audience which isn't necessarily true of everything I've ever made but that show had a really broad appeal I feel 
Mm. How did you go about writing the music for that? Did you did you have friends in the arts that kind of supported you in doing that or did you write all the music and then go and find someone to play with you? Oh, okay. Well, the answer is both. So that was the first time that I was ever really um, presenting music I had written in public and it was terrifying. So really the backstory before I performed then is I I dropped out of uni in the UK in like June of 2013. And it was because I was doing a theatre making degree, which was amazing and wonderful. But it just struck me that actually a more effective way to learn would be to drop out and just make a bunch of stuff. Because um, mm. it's not like, it's not brain surgery. I don't need a piece of paper to do my job safely. I can just make it up, right? So um, I dropped out and then I heard about this amazing festival in London called Vault Festival. And they were taking applications for shows. So I just made up a show that I wish existed. And I was like, oh, I'm going to ask people online for stories and then turn those stories into songs. And then when they accepted my application, I was like, oh, uh, can I swear on this? Fruitcake. Oh, yeah, fruitcake. I've got, <laughs> fruit I've got, I've got four months to figure out how to do this. So then I figured out. And also, like, I got kicked out of elective music in year nine. I've, and I've tr- I tried and failed to learn. I think it's four musical instruments. I still can't play even one. So I had a lot of like a lot of baggage around, oh, I I love writing music, but I'm not allowed to. And I just had to figure it out. So I downloaded this program called Ableton and I started composing the songs, but the real credit has to go to a friend of mine, Alex Groves in London, who is an amazing composer in his own right. And he would sit down with me and I would show him these demo tracks I had I figured out how to make on Ableton, which is like, yeah, some on, some software on your computer that lets you compose. And he would sit with me and I'd go, why does this one chord sound weird? And he'd go, okay, just put that note there and then it will sound nice. And he kind of, like, he compositionally, he helped me with the last 20% in terms of making things click together. And then he also helped add lots of orchestration. So Claire, I would have a song that would be great. And he'd be like, yeah, the reason why this doesn't slap is that you haven't got a drum line yet. And I was like, oh yeah, 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 you're right. So he really was kind of like my doula who helped me make all these songs. And then, I mean, the things that he taught me about how to use this program uh, other skills that I use every day now. So I, I owe a lot to him. I call him my music dad, even though he's my age. Oh God, I love that so much. I so relate to what you're saying about music because yeah, for lots of reasons. But one question I had was then, does that mean you create an audio recording and then whoever you're working with as a composer or musician, you then bring that audio recording to them rather than sheet music? Or does the program ah, generate sheet music for you? This How do is, you do this that? This is a really good question. Okay, I never work with sheet music, as in like I never compose on sheet music. I can't read music. doesn't work for me. So the way that Ableton works, musicians listening will, will know this, but it uses this language called MIDI, which for me is really approachable because it's like writing music in an Excel spreadsheet. So just imagine all of those rows are different notes and the columns are beats and you can change the settings um, in terms of what time signature or tempo you want it to be. But I would sit at my laptop, which I'm staring at now, and using a QWERTY keyboard, I'd, I'd hit the notes and I would hear like the note that I want and I would hum. I'd Let's say I've got a tune that goes da na na then I'd get out a guitar tuner app on my phone. I'd sing that. I'd find out what the notes were. And then I would click on my keyboard. Duh, nah, nah, when I figured out which, like, W was duh, 
and E was nah, and R was nah. Like it was like it was like painting a house with an ear tip, like a cotton. What, what are they called? Like a Q-tip. Like honestly, yeah, it was Q-tip. the slowest process. Yeah, that's what I did, and and also you could make what's called a little drum rack, which is like a little drum kit you build yourself. You drop samples in, and you go, okay, well, when I hit A, I can hear a doosh, and when I hit S, I hear and I would just sit in a Starbucks and just jam out on my laptop until I found the beat that I wanted. And then Alex, or I call him Grobesy, would sit down with me and he would hear. So literally imagine that in this program, you know, I can make as many layers as I want to play at once. And so he would see this file and he'd, he'd go, oh, okay, I see. And then the, you want this to be the chorus, but you want it to sound bigger. And he's like, okay, well, you know, adding a bunch of flutes isn't necessarily going to make your chorus sound bigger. Maybe you want to switch those over and you want to make those tubers, you know? So he would sit there and he'd help me reimagine the shape, but he was beautiful in letting me guide and direct that and also, you know, be kind of the the author at the center of it. Because mm, there is one thing, isn't there? And I'm starting to learn that there are the people that can do the building of the house because they know the nuts and bolts, they understand the bricks and mortar and they follow a pattern. And then there are the people that make the shit up. And sometimes you don't have to be the person that knows how to build the house, like following a pattern the way that everyone does. Sometimes you need both. You need the ideas person as well. Do you, am like I making the sense? Architect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, that so, makes sense yeah. to me. Yeah, because I, I think – um, some people struggle, and I know I have too, with that idea of I've you know tried a million times to learn guitar properly or learn piano properly, and it just it never quite clicks. But I can hear the music or you know the things mm. in my head. But there's that fear that oh I'm not good enough, therefore I don't have the right or permission to actually do the thing. You know, make that thing. I relate to this so hard. Like I from the age of 13 when I had a flip phone would go into the little voice memo app in my flip phone and I would just sing songs I'd made up into it I was always writing music but because I was I never found it it never really made sense to me trying to learn an instrument I I was never able to break through and like I tried to learn the euphonium I tried to (laughs) learn guitar piano like None, nothing clicked. Singing, I enjoyed. I was, I wasn't naturally great at it. It took a lot of work, but I enjoyed it because I felt like I could print my mind out immediately. And what frustrated me is, and I still feel this way when I see a piano, I wish I could print my mind onto the keys. I can hear melodies and I can't get it out. And for so long, I thought, well, you know, if you haven't learned by now, it's too late. And Mm. I just think that's the most toxic thing to decide to believe about yourself. Mm. And I think the word decide and believe are really, really important because it's so easy to go, I can't do that. But you have to say, no, I am deciding to believe that I can't do that. And there's always other ways, you know. I, I can't really believe that the answer was always there in front of me. It just was about getting something on my laptop and sitting there for hours and figuring out how to make it work. But I got there. Mm. So interesting. I have a little side story. One of my rellos is Paul Kelly, the singer-songwriter. Just casual, and bit of PK. Just, just casual, a bit of drop it in. No, the reason I bring him up, though, is because he does the same thing. Like, a lot of his songs are written over text message. Like, literally, he'd be at a coffee shop and he wrote, 
I don't know, I think it was dumb things in a text message to his partner and or like he has a little tape cassette that he just pressed record on and that cassette would have, he didn't have written music or anything like that. He just kind of twirled around with it and then gave the cassette of How to Make Gravy to a mate who was a musician. Mate. Who was like, you know what I mean? So I, that's why I think that there is, the more that you talk to me, the more I think, God, sometimes just because we're not people that make virtuosos and there are those people that can do both doesn't mean that there is an absolute genius or value in the ideas and the magic bit, you know? Oh, a million percent. And I think like the key thing that, that inspires me about that story is it's just proof that there is no holy process. There's no one way to do things. And honestly, sheet music scared me for so long because I thought, gosh, if I, if I can't read music, then I'm not allowed to work some other way. You know what I mean? It just felt like that. Yes. That's the thing that you must learn. That's a proper way to do it. And I realized now, <laughs> not like you can do, you can make it however you want. And I'm so happy that's becoming more normalized, I feel, as the whole record industry is starting to become less about like studio time and working with pros. And it's more about a bunch of kids in their bedrooms making stuff and being able to put it immediately online. Mm. I'm excited that like teenagers growing up now might know that it's really normal that people just kind of make it up as they go. Like Billie Eilish is one of the biggest things in the world and she just makes everything in her brother's bedroom with him, you know? Yeah, well, because that's because everything was made by someone, including sheet music. It's all just made by someone. Mm -hmm. It might just be a bit further along ago than than, um, what we're making now. I want to go back to something you said. Why is it so important, those words around sort of decision and thought, the way that you think about things? Why do you think that's so important? So in my talk that I gave at TED, I talked a lot about like how we perceive young women and the words we use to describe young women and how that makes them see themselves. And I think like one example of how I I saw myself for a long time is as someone who was bad at music, who couldn't do that. And then I robbed myself of a lot of joy by believing that. And it took me until I was older, right, to realize that that wasn't a true thing. That was something I believed, but also it's something that I didn't have to believe. So I kind of think like, yeah, the word decide and the word believe, it's really important to try to include them when you are describing things that are true about yourself. And especially as a young woman, I think that applies to a lot of things. Something that I get really saddened by is how much I see young women apologize unnecessarily. And I think there's so much social conditioning that we can undo about who we feel we have to be and how we feel we have to cater to other people. And I think it's just really important sometimes to check in on what you you have decided to believe without realizing that you've made that decision. Mm. Tell me about the year you spent interviewing fangirls. <gasps> With pleasure. Oh. <laughs> With Mate. relish. With relish. Um, okay. <laughs> so for for newbies or people who don't know me from a toenail, four years ago I met this 13-year-old girl and she told me she'd met the man she was going to marry. And I was like, okay, sure, tell me about him. And she was like, yeah, his name's Harry Styles, who, if you don't know, like at the time was a member of One Direction, biggest boy band in the world. And I was like, okay, sure, Harry Styles. And she's like, look, I know you don't think I'm serious, but I am. And I love him so much that I'm definitely going to be with him, even if it means slitting someone's throat. I would literally do that because I love him that much. And we're going to be together and I'll show you. 
And her tenacity was just, it just infected my curiosity. I was like, what is this? So then I spent a few hardcore months just becoming obsessed with teenage fangirls or specifically the fandom of One Direction and reading fan fiction, thousands of tweets, like looking at how to make um, devotional fan crafts for them and became like a little mini expert, was like staying up till 4 a.m. just deep diving and I didn't know yet why I was so interested. I, it, I think my curiosity definitely was colored with a kind of morbid curiosity. And what I didn't realize was like a little bit of judgment. But everything changed for me when Zayn Malik left the band One Direction and there was global mourning about it. There was global grief about the fact that this beloved member of the band had kind of just left overnight without warning. And I noticed that in the coverage of this story, I noticed there was there were kind of sexist descriptions of young women and they were being described as banshees and psycho and insane. And it occurred to me that like the image of young women screaming at a pop concert is carries this interesting baggage where it can be described easily as crazy and a bit much and even scary. But young boys doing exactly the same behavior at a, at a sports game, at a football game, like even crying is considered, you know, just passionate and normal. No one really bats an eye. And I suddenly thought, wait, why is that? And why is it that, you know, when I was diving in on teenage fandom online, it was with this small judgment. I saw it and I was like, what is this? Um, what is this crazy phenomenon? And I was really interested then in how I had looked at these young women and then how I have been looked at as a young woman growing up and how the world has told me in all these subtle ways that maybe women are just designed a bit crazier than men and how that influenced my behavior. That's like, sorry, that's quite a long primer. But basically I then just spent a year reaching out to as many fangirls as I could find, people who considered themselves present fangirls, past fangirls, fan mums, fan dads and investigating like what is the experience like of being a fangirl or I don't like to say or fanboy like I just think fangirls can be girls or boys what is that experience like and how does the world talk about you and what does the world not understand about you mm. what does the world not understand about them do you think <sighs> so much so well here's the thing is that was 2015 and this is 2019. And in the four years since, I have been nonstop writing about fat girls. So, I mean, I really should be bored of them by now, but I'm still completely obsessed. And there's, I just think there is so much. So, like, one misconception that I know that I had is my assumption was that fango culture would be largely competitive. It would be about people like versing each other for the attention and affection of their idols. But then what was amazing is discovering stuff like in the One Direction fandom, there was and is this alliance of queer fans called Rainbow Direction. And they are all about supporting queer fans and making sure, especially when um, there's like public gatherings, that there is a safe space for those fans. And so they started this project... I think it was in Boston in 2014 where they in like one direction would play in an arena and rainbow direction would organize it so that based on which seating bank you were in, you could be told what color to put up on your phone screen during a certain number. And they got like thousands of fans to participate so that the whole arena during this one song became a giant rainbow flag. Does that make sense? Mm, like they, yeah, yeah there's amazing. photos online. And it's what's amazing is that then has inspired so many repeat actions. And then uh, last year, 
uh, a group called the Rainbow H Project in London went even one further and they dropped on 14,000 seats at the O2 Arena, a colored piece of paper with a note saying, put this over your phone flashlight during this song to be part of a rainbow. And it's the brightest one that I've seen. There's photos of it and 14,000 people in this arena make a giant rainbow flag. Um, Right. And it's just so inspiring because it's, this example of executive skills in communication and logistics. I love it. It's pro-gay. It's anti-bullying. Like the example of the most recent one was masterminded by an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old, and then they got 40 volunteers to help them. And I just don't think that that's what immediately comes to mind when people think of fan culture. Often when people think of fan culture, they'll think of like stories of girls doing things that are violent or even like kind of pathological and obsessive. Or like the the vomit shrine that you talk about (laughs) on the side of the road. Yes. For anyone listening, Claire is referring to, in my TED Talk, I talk about how, I think it's 2014, Harry Styles vomited on the side of a freeway in California and within two hours fans had like erected a little shrine in honour of the vomit on the side of the freeway. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, exactly. And, And stuff like that, I think, you know, people... My problem is that people hear stories like that, which, and honestly, I think that was done partially, uh, like with with irony, in jest, like with irony, right? That's my understanding of it. But people hear stories like that. And my problem is that people go, a fangirl's done that. And then the next jump they make is like, that's what women do. And the next jump they make is like, women, women do that, but men would never. And I think there's so much more complexity in there. Like, like, let's take a step back and think about how, you know, celebrity worship isn't really sold to men in the same way. Let's take a step back and think about how presentations of aspirational women for little girls often, like, I mean, I grew up on Disney movies where princesses, like my vintage of Disney was about princesses waiting for a whole movie for a prince to pick them and for them to get married and just fixated on the approval of men. And then, and then when I was a teenager, every romantic comedy that was marketed to me pretty much was about a girl trying to get a guy to fall in love with her. So, like, there are so many forces that we need to consider before we judge the behavior of, of women in fan culture. And also, like, who's to say that expressing your love for something is gross and embarrassing? That's, I think, a very masculine perspective. And I go into that a bit in my talk. Yeah. I, what is it, do you think, that really creates that deep love that girls have for, say, Harry, just because it is, it's like a real deep love. And I watched, obviously you're turning this all into a musical, and I watched that beautiful song when you were, you sort of said a line, and I'm going to butcher it now, about how he sees me, how you, how I want to be seen. Or you, you tell me that line. You know, do you know the one I mean? Oh, is it in your eyes I'm someone I want to be? Perfect. Ah. Exactly. I loved that. I thought, gosh, that is so beautiful. Do you want to tell me where that came from? Yeah, sure. I think it's difficult to speak to what fangirls see in, for example, Harry Styles, because it's different for everyone. So I'm going to leave that open-ended because I think fan culture gives different people different things for different reasons. But that lyric that you point out is, yeah, from this musical I've been writing, Fangirls, which I should explain. So my obsession with Fangirls led me to go, oh, my gosh, I need to write 
something that vindicates fangirls and and lets people have the epiphanies I've had about how they are so much more than I thought they were and also how um, the way the world talks about fangirls is a microcosm for how the world talks about young female enthusiasm. So I got a grant to write this musical and I decided it needed to sound like a Beyonce concert meets rave meets church. And then <laughs> fast forward, I got more and more investment and then it comes out later this year. It's going to premiere in Brisbane and then it comes to Sydney, Queensland Theatre in Brisbane and then in Sydney it's a Belvoir. So, yeah, that's coming up and that's what I'm eating all this protein for. But, yeah, so so in the show there's a, a fictional storyline that happens in the show but it's totally inspired by everyone I've met and spoken to in my research. Yeah, and the protagonist is this young girl, Edna, who's 14, who I play. And one of the the big songs in the show, the, the big chorus hook is In Your Eyes, I'm Someone I Want to Be. And I think, I mean, my experience of being a teenager was just being so uncomfortable in my own skin. And like, and I think a lot of people can relate to being a teenager and just searching for like who you're supposed to be and who you want to be. And I definitely feel that, you know, worshiping a celebrity, there's a safety um, that they can contain in moments where you kind of need a bit of a handrail in life. And that makes a lot of sense. Mm, I think that's why it hits home. I know Brene Brown talks about that. When you hear something true, it hits you in the gut. And that lyric to me is one of those things. It hits somewhere quite deep. Because oh, wow. I, no, it really does. Because I think, and and it might not be your obsession with, you know, a celebrity necessarily, but especially when you're a young person, you're seeking who you are in the world. That idea of having someone see you and see you in a light, or that see you as the person you want to be, maybe not the person you are just yet, is um, yeah, really kind of uh, heartbreakingly true. <laughs> Uh, you know what? That yeah. means so much because I've been making this for four years. It has been a slog and I can't wait till it comes out and people can actually engage with it. So hearing from you that you got something from it is like, oh, phew, maybe it was worth it. Great. Oh, yay. Okay, we'll finish the pod there. <laughs> no, I, I have so many questions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One other question for this musical. Mm. I thought that you got some help from the Rebel Wilson Theatre Maker Scholarship. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. And I saw a pic of you with Rebel Wilson talking about celebrities. How did that come to be? Um, oh, well, she – so she – I think she still does sponsor, but it's changed its name. She sponsored in 2016 a scholarship with the Australian Theatre for Young People. So basically – she kindly um, put up the money and then I was in residence there. I had a desk that I could write at for a year. And what was really brilliant about the scholarship is that at the end of the year, I was allowed to do like a presentation of whatever I wanted for 40 minutes. And they were like, oh, you could do a speech about how you spent a year. But of course, I'd spent the whole year like writing this musical. And I was like, 
I want to hear this music. I may never hear it again, right? Like, because at that mm. point, there was a chance that no one would put up any more money and and I'd never get to hear or see it. Honestly, as well, like an original Australian musical is not necessarily a bankable idea. <laughs> and they're bloody expensive. Musicals are so expensive. So I sort of thought, okay, well, maybe I'll treat this year like an MA. Like it was just an educational experience, but I'll go out with a bang. And then there were eight amazing actresses who volunteered to be in this 40-minute showcase. My friend Alex Balage is an amazing lighting designer. And I was like, oh, just make it look like Beyonce, but with a budget of 90 bucks or something. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we did this showcase and, and filmed that. And then the footage of that showcase is really what created the life that Fangirls has now because that footage was shared with producers in Australia, but also some legends sent it to producers in London and LA. LA and New York and soon unexpectedly I was getting contacted uh, by film and TV companies about the screen rights as well and then that created some extra heat on the theatrical rights and yeah that's that's the kind of story of of that year that is huge Thanks. that is so huge what did it feel like after working for so many years on your craft and creating something that you had no idea where it would go what did it feel like to get that kind of recognition wow well like honestly quite mixed right because absolutely so positive so great um so encouraging but also mm. there was definitely a complexity that i felt in writing a show that inherently is about like one of the big themes in the show is about how like we ridicule young women but they're one of the most powerful consumer bases in the world and with also a point about how we ruthlessly market them to buy stuff constantly. And, you know, we, we, we tell little girls, hey, you're about to become an adult woman and you're about to unlock hotness. But in order to do that, you have to have the right eyebrows. So here's five things you can buy to make sure you have the right eyebrows. Like, th this infuriates me. And then it was really, it was kind of overwhelming to have all these people go, hey, we love your idea. But also, do you realize how commercial it is? Like, do you realize how commercial teenage girls are as an audience? And I was definitely, I had some trust issues in early 2007 when I was looking through all these proposals because I wanted to protect um, this audience I really cared about, you know, and I was really, ah, I was really suspicious when I spoke to people. I was like, how do you see this? Because I was kind of terrified that if I picked the wrong producer or the wrong people to bring it into the world, like I always thought there'd be a, there could be a really bad version of Fangirls where like everyone is like, you know, when you see movies and 30-year-olds are playing 13-year-olds and they're wearing mm. high heels and they're like, hair is perfect. And you, I was just so nervous about it becoming an untrue depiction of teenage girls because uh, yeah. there's enough of those and I think they can be really damaging. So, yeah, or making fun of them too, I guess, is the other part uh, of it. Which would be so ironic, right, after yeah. all my work. So, so it was so exciting, but it was also like it was like being thrown in the deep end in terms of learning skills of how to protect myself, how to how to negotiate. There's a, a phrase my friend told me about recently, a Russian phrase apparently comes from like the Cold War time, which is trust but verify. And apparently mm. it means like always assume the best in people, but always, you know, make sure you can confirm their intentions and uh, yeah. Yeah. The interest in fangirls was so exciting, but also 
quite draining to, to to sift through. And it's really emotional if you've got more than one person who both want to do your work and they both are offering you things. It can be really emotional because they just – you don't want to disappoint anyone, but you also can't pick everyone. So, yeah. Mm, absolutely. Man, full on. On another note, can you tell me about Mary Wollstonecraft? Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, I'm so excited. hundred percent. Okay. I should, I should try to be brief about this. And I'm saying that cause I never am. Um, <laughs> basically long story short, there is a woman from the 18th century called Mary Wollstonecraft who most people listening, I'm going to, I'm going to guess have never heard of. Or if you have, you maybe are thinking of her daughter, Mary Shelley, who's also called Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. She is kind of one of the grandmothers of feminism in the English language. And she shamefully is largely forgotten in history because she wrote this incredible, okay, so she wrote this incredible text called A Vindication of the Rights of Women, which basically said, hey, like, one weird thing about society is how we treat girls like idiots and we don't let them go to school like boys. And we kind of like, in terms of their rights, we kind of make them into sex slaves and that's dumb. Maybe we should like not do that. It's this wonderfully sassy but intelligent book. That's like, why can't, like, isn't everything going to get better for everyone if we just educate women more? And she's so clever. Yes. She's like, she's like, if women are raised to be, Oh, I'm I'm kind of butchering it, right? But I'm trying to be succinct here. No, no, I know exactly what you mean because I that just I know I just interrupted you. But no, one not at thing all. I I loved about that was I interviewed Damien Gamow who did 2040 that film and yeah, I know, amazing. And most is anything to me. He sort of looks at five different things that we can do to combat the climate crisis. The number one thing is educating women and girls. Like the number one thing, the more that we educate women and girls, yes. the more likely we will to reduce our carbon emissions, reduce our footprint, reduce waste, all the things. Anyway, sidetrack, just thought that was interesting. That's Mary so great. Wilson I can't wait to yeah. deep dive on that. Well, mm. she, look, I can always go deep. She has an amazing early life story, but her revelation is like, wait why don't girls get the same education as boys? And she points out, she understands that the majority of the people who are going to read her book are probably men. So she really lays her case out and she's like, if you have dumb wives, you're going to be dumb men. You need someone, like, she She lays out all of these points as to why women should get the same education as men, including pointing out in this wonderful way that it, we raise women to be perpetual babies. Like, she talks about how, and I think this is so interesting because I, I remember watching Paris Hilton do this when I grew up. She spoke in this, like, high-pitched baby voice. And Mary Wilson points out that like women get so frightened of aging and we, we, we socially condition women to, to be dumb to please men. And like, this is ultimately just really inefficient for society. There's so many reasons why this is, this just doesn't make any sense. So that's the core of, of her life. But there's also 10 other reasons why she's a bad bitch. She's so cool. But when she dies, it comes out that her two daughters are by two different men. And truly, for the next 250 years, um, her legacy is basically buried because she's written off as a crazy slut. And there are mm. um, examples of dictionaries in the, I want to say, 19th century 
where you can see the word prostitute in the index. And if you look up the word prostitute in the index, it says, see Mary Wollstonecraft. Oh, no, not, sorry, encyclopedia, not dictionary. So she, and like apparently in the suffragette movement, calling someone a Wollstonecraft was was to say that they're not actually an activist, they're just crazy for dick. And so it's just so interesting to me, and it's truly just because she had two daughters by two different men. It's just so interesting to me that all of her academia, her her work as a um as a philosopher was written off. And like she was the the work that she was doing, she was writing stuff that the founding fathers of America go on to write like several months after her. She's got essays that predate their words that state all the things that they're gonna say and in a way that's twice as sassy and like yeah, she's just the coolest and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm cooking something up about her. I'm really excited. She's the biggest bad bitch that we don't know about and we all should know about. Exactly, uh, exactly. Correct. And it's a musical podcast, am I right? Correct. It's very – it's in quite embryonic stages, so I shouldn't talk too much about it. But, yeah, I think the podcast musicals are where it's at and I have one brewing about her. Oh, I love it. You have so many projects brewing it's very exciting. Oh, um, thank you. Y- you are welcome. Okay, this is a biggie. How do you deal with fear and that whole inner critic? Do you have one? Oh, it's a good question, isn't it? And it's also a very pertinent one for me because, I mean, I am about to go into rehearsals for something I've spent four years making. And so I kind of I try, I try to stay philosophical and go like, um, I've just decided that I'm not going to be nervous between now and opening night because any moment that I'm nervous, I'm wasting time when I could be feeling excited. And so what I try to do sometimes is, is think about it as like a, a expenditure of energy. There you go. So if I'm scared about something, I'm like, wait, you'll never get these moments back and you could have been feeling something else. That's a bit of a Band-Aid solution. I don't know. I find talking about fear difficult because I feel like you just need to move through it. You need to find whatever trick you can to change the channel. And it's not a particularly satisfactory answer, but that, that, that would be my answer. Cause like, no, if, how do I describe this? If you're scared to do something, no one can do your work for you. No one can do your creative gesture for you. So, you, you know, the more time you, you spend being frightened to act, just, you're just delaying the inevitable, which is taking action, right? Mm, or freezing and not doing anything. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on this, Claire? You've got this podcast, you've listened to it, so many people answer this. What is your take on fear and inner critic? Uh, I think some people have bigger ones than others. I've interviewed people who just don't even know what I'm talking about, really, or they have a little bit of fear, but it doesn't control them. And I have people who have fear so much in the driver's seat of their life that it, for years, it's like just halted them completely in their tracks. And I think the common thread that seems to come through, and I think what you're saying too, is that you focus on the work and the minute everyday getting up on the balls of your feet, carrying shit, sitting in a Starbucks cafe, banging out that bar of that song, you know, like you focus on that and that will get you through the fear because I think fear loves catastrophizing and big picture thinking and I think if we just focus minutely on the work, and I, by the way, I do not coin that phrase. I think that was Barack Obama or somebody, but it's that to me. And that's the only way, because I have a giant inner critic and a massive 
ward of fear. And to me, that's the only thing that I've been able to kind of actually get some stuff out there properly is when I just focus on the work and I put it out regardless if I think it's good. Just put it out. I think that's all you can do. I I think, you know what, you've really inspired me to look at this differently. And I think what I should say is that I, like, I am an expert catastrophizer. I am a perennial insomniac because I'm really, really good at imagining stuff, right? Like, that's how come I can write, but it's also how come I can stay up till 4 a.m. thinking of, like, eight different ways a meeting in two weeks is going to go. And I'm trying to, as I get older, decide, like, this is not a useful use of my imagination. I actually, I'm not making anything better by reiterating a thousand versions of how this might happen. Oh, but like, I have never, never been good at shutting that down. So that is 100% worth saying. And also, I think uh, I am a massive perfectionist. Like, for example, my typical process when writing a song is maybe I'll come up with a beat to begin with and then I I mean I'll write between 10 and 20 even one time 39 pages of lyrics and then I, I I sift for gold through that and I feel like I cannot be confident and happy with the song unless I know I've done the diligence of creating a 10 times more content than I selected and you know, I, recently I was, I can't remember who, I was listening to someone on a podcast describe that like perfectionism is just fear um, in really good shoes. It's like just fear dressed up. It seems like, you know, really worthy and important and it's a good work ethic, but it's actually just your fear in disguise. So I think that's something I personally really need to work on, right? Because think about how much time I could save if I was able to be in touch with a more intuitive process that didn't involve writing 39 pages of lyrics. (laughs) Having said that, musical theatre is so weird and sometimes that is what's required because you have so many tasks at once in a song, right? It can't just be a bop. It also has to tell a story, but it has to tell it in the right tone and for, and for what the audience need at that moment in the night. It's I can go on. <laughs> no, I can totally agree. I think Liz Gilbert, who I love, wrote a book called Big Magic and she talks about that, that your fear is your friend. And I think however your brain does the things that it does and what it needs to create stuff, fear is one of those things. You can't get rid of it. You need it there to catastrophize about a meeting so that you go in there with all your arsenal and you sort of write all those lyrics because you want it to be perfect and you and that's like the sheer kind of thing about working, right, and creating something that's mediocre or creating something that's genius is that amount of work. Some Someone else said, now I'm just tossing quotes around, but someone else said that the distance between where you are and where you want to be is just sheer volumes of work. And some people are gifted with natural talent and therefore may have to work less or write less or, you know, whatever. But the majority of people and genuinely all the people I've spoken to who've had successes it's just been they've worked their asses off and harder than the person next to them. Do you know what I mean? Oof, yes. As someone who can only make music by, like I say, painting a house with a Q-tip, like working on my laptop as opposed to the Tim Minchins of this world who, I mean, like when you see that guy play piano, it really does feel like he's just printing his mind out. Yeah, 100%, I agree with you. It's just about doing the work. And for some people, it's going to be fast. And for some people, it's going to take 39 pages of lyrics, but it's just, 
it's just the work, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It totally is. But it's the doing of the thing. Oh, mate, I am such a massive Tim Minchin fan. Oh, have you have you met him? Yeah, I actually, actually, I have. So I also am a massive Tim Minchin fan. Like. Um, especially when I was much younger and when I was struggling to answer the call of like just write music and I was thinking to myself, no, I can't. I saw his documentary when I was, I think, 19 and it really turned things around for me. I was like, right, I'm going to do this. But I spectacularly in early 2017, at that time when I was getting all these exciting offers, he reached out to me. A few people had sent the video I described to him and were like, please meet this girl. She's going to be in LA. I was in LA uh, as part of a sponsored trip that came with the scholarship and really kindly he took me out and we had a cup of tea and he was a real mentor to me and then he said at the end of the chat you know especially if I had a, a manager from London at the time because I had been living in London a few years before I think it's like you really need a representative in Australia if you're going to be doing uh, deals with Australian producers and really generously he called his manager who now reps me so yeah I, I see Tim now in them because we have the same manager um yeah he's just been very very generous to me wow that's amazing there is something similar about the energy of your music and his music I think when I watched Matilda the musical I, had a, I used to be a teacher and one of my little students um played Matilda in the role as Matilda and that's oh a whole gosh. other story but I lost and she was like she'd never been in a professional musical before and I used to wow. work with her with theatre and music and stuff and she said she was auditioning and I was like sure cool good on you mate like well you know like in my head being like cool good job you know not ever dreaming she would I mean she was really talented but you know she's never done anything professional like that before and she bloody smashed it and then I went and sat in the audience and I just sobbed my heart out for like the entire show that is a beautiful show (laughs) hey oh magical really magical but I think there's something like playful and fun and imaginative about his work and you know quirky and but still hits you in the gut and I that's the same I'm not surprised that he was drawn to your music because I I to me I see that same and quickness of lyric and that kind of thing Oh, I'm very flattered by that, Claire. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome because I'm just saying it because it's true. Anyway, that's how I see it. So that's incredible. Was he what you expected when you met him? Oh, and and more. Just such a legend. I have nothing but great things to say about the guy. And actually, so my manager's named Michael and his business partner is a woman named Naz. And she's amazing. And she, I think she put it perfectly. We were on a call once and she's like, baby doll, you know what I reckon? Tim is the whole enchilada. And that's exactly what he is. He's the whole enchilada. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my God. You really nailed, like, what I think an American manager would sound like to you. Oh. A cigarette or something in her mouth. No, she's actually Aussie. She's from Melbourne. But she's oh. just, she's, like, got this beautiful, earthy, if you ever hear this, Maz, I completely love you. She's got this beautiful, earthy voice and this wonderful, like, joie de vivre. And, um, yeah, I just think that her quote about Tim is exactly right. He's the howl enchilada. <laughs> I love it. I know I'm taking up a lot of your precious writing time. No, I don't worry. Yeah. Okay, so my next question. Tell me about your bloody amazing hair and costume obsession, I think. Well, it seems like there's a bit of an obsession there because when I deep dive into your Instagram, there are so many fabulous hair things happening and clothes things happening oh my gosh um wow I've never been asked about my hair obsession before I I guess well yeah I I with all the work I've ever done I've always really liked 
dressing really outlandishly and like for the TED talk, I had this sequin dress. I just, I really, I've always enjoyed when you wear something that isn't just like stylish, but is actually a little bit silly, like is extra to the point of being a bit silly. I really like the mood that that puts other people in. I think it's on my Instagram. I once had to go to this red carpet event in LA and I was like, what? Red carpet event? As if. That sounds like, that just sounds uncomfortable, right? That sounds like a tight Uh. dress that I can't really eat my dinner in. That sounds like heels, which are like annoying to walk on. Like no, no part of that when I think, imagine it physically feels fun. And I was like, how can I make this night feel fun to be in physically? Because, you know, guys don't, I don't know, I could I could write an essay about how, oh, like... Oh, so like, they just walk around with, like, giant pockets and, like, very comfortable shoes and it's uh, the same outfit they've worn a hundred times. And they're warm and then if it's hot, they just take their jacket off and it's just great and easy. I just think, I think we all need to grow up a bit and, like... I don't know if the girls need to dress down or the guys need to dress up, but yeah, we've got to level this playing field. Anyway, I found this old dress that I had and then I went to the reject shop. If you don't know what that is or you're not from Australia, it's kind of like a $2 shop um, in Australia or like a pound store or a dollar store. And I got a bunch of silver tinsel wigs and I, in a hotel room in LA, stapled them to this dress that I used to own to make the whole dress into like this silver tinsel. I just looked like a Christmas tree. But it was really fun because I went to this event and all these people I did not know came up to me and asked if they could play with it. And I was like, yeah, this is how this is how I feel comfortable dressing in public is with things that people want to come over and touch and play with. So, yeah, I guess that's that's just always been an obsession of mine. And I also right now my hair is my natural color. It's brown because I, I had to grow it out to play this 14 year old girl. But a few years ago, I used to have like white white bleach blonde hair and you can't tell it so much in pictures but it was not a good situation like I was box dyeing it myself I was 15 pound boxes of hair dye and by the time I came to the end of my time as like a bleach blonde I mean my hair was literally just fairy floss so it really needed a break yeah (laughs) yeah I also saw you've got a friend or someone that you work with who you call the lego queen is it sophie caution is that Ah, how you say her name sophie koshevalu i think that's how i think that's how you pronounce it yeah we did a collaboration a few years ago everyone check her out she's amazing she made me (laughs) for one of my shows where i took submissions from the internet i got trolled really really hard so i got her to make me this like amazing cowboy jacket but the fringing on the jacket was troll dolls so she got a whole bunch of (laughs) tiny mini troll dolls and she got a drill she actually kind of drill kind of where their vagina would be and then with fishing wire sewed them to make a cowboy jacket yeah covered in trolls and that was a costume in my show she's amazing and she does a bunch a bunch of amazing like fashion and jewelry and headdresses and she's uh i don't know how you find her on instagram i think it's just Sophie Koshevelu, C-O-C-H-E-V-E-L-O-U. Yeah, she's great. She's <laughs> yeah. made a dress out of Lego as well, which is why I called her the Lego queen. Oh, God, I know. It's so colourful. It just, it just makes you laugh and so much fun and still gorgeous and interesting and oh, great. She's the future. She's amazing. Yeah, just tell me about the trolling. I'm so sorry, mate. That's awful. Oh, no, it was fine. It was it was fine trolling. It was more like the submission form. Let me think. That was a show where I asked people to tell me about lies that they had told and, like, to come clean. 
and lots of people just sort of wrote clearly fake things um, with fake email addresses. Uh, and so I just had a whole song on the show where I just like, I shared all of the fake stuff that people sent in. I can't, honestly, I can't really remember anything about the song. I just remember the jacket. <laughs> Fair enough. Cause that uh, was an effy jacket. Very extra. I'm going to use that word now. Oh, I love it. Words. Go extra or go home. Yes. Word for life. For sure. Just because I'm curious and a nosy Parker, what is a story that, cause you've asked and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people to share sort of funny stories or deep stories about their life. It doesn't have to be in answer to who do they feel they used to be, but is there a story that really sticks out to you that was quite poignant or sort of memorable? Yeah. You know, the first thing that's coming to mind, um, it wasn't from the years that I was making those solo shows, but when I was researching fangirls, I connected with this amazing fan in London. And at the time he was in his mid twenties and we met and he was wearing this amazing jacket that said, it was like a pink lady's jacket, but embroidered across the back, it said Styles. He's a big Harry Styles fan and he had, almost everything he was wearing was inspired by something Harry had worn. So we met in a cafe and I was like, wow, like this is this is a new level for me. I haven't interviewed <laughs> anyone who is, who's this deep in. But it was amazing. We hung out for a few hours and I, I found myself talking to him and swapping stories of moments in our lives where, you know, just everything had gone wrong, but the right album had come into our life at the right time and had acted like a handrail to both of us. And hearing what he, he'd had a really rough year of his life coinciding with, I think it's the second last One Direction album. And he sort of described how knowing that that album was coming out in six weeks helped him get through the six weeks leading up to its release. And then, you know, knowing that then there was only a few weeks until the band went on tour was like a kind of shining light for him. And I thought, I I thought to myself, man, like this is someone who a few hours ago I met and I was like, whoa, admittedly, I was like, whoa and then we were sharing this beautiful bonding moment and I was describing how a Florence and the Machine album had like got me through 2011 and I was like oh Uh, it was just a really beautiful moment of connection and it was sort of like when you're on um like a flight and you have a deep deep conversation with the stranger next to you because you know you'll never see them again it was one of those beautiful conversations but now we're still in touch and we're still mates so that's what comes to mind for me that sounds amazing it is so funny isn't it i i find that with podcasting sometimes i feel like i'm listening to someone talk and I've, I've only just met them and then we go into these really deep places in their psyche and then afterwards you leave and you it's this beautiful, precious thing and you might not see them very often or if ever again, but in a way you share something different from people that you would see all the time, your family or your mates. 100%, mate, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, this life thing is a strange old thing. What happened that got that Florence got you through? Oh, her album think it was 2011 so it was the year after I left high school and I think I was I mean listen I was highly pretentious and highly ostentatious when I left high school I was like I'm gonna leave high school and I'm just gonna make all the theater and change the world it's gonna be great and then of course I left high school and there was no structure anymore and I was working in a bunch of hospitality jobs and then I went traveling for a bit and just like ate toast for months to kind of afford that and then it was yeah late in the year after high school my gap year and I just sort of felt this deep existential like what am I doing what is the future and then that that album ceremonials that came out was just so 
theatrical and melodramatic and it's like the whole thing sounds like it was produced by Hans Zimmer. It's got these epic drums and horns and it was so galvanizing. It felt like this call to action of like, go. And there's like a song called, um, heartline, which is all about like following your heartline. And I look, I was just like an 18 year old girl who, who felt really embraced by that music and really, uh, I feel like it like cured my depression. Do you know what I mean? It just woke yeah. me up and I was like, let's go. Uh, and I yeah. still return to that album all the time when I feel exhausted or lost or like I've had one too many conversations about some like legal nuance in a deal. And I forget that it's all about creativity and I forget that I'm like living my dream. And then I listen to that album and I'm like, oh, I remember when I was so hungry for my life to start and I would listen to this to sort of feel a hope. So, yeah. Oh, well, mate, your life has well and truly started by the sound. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> and your dance rehearsals will start very soon. Oh, so many good lucks and chookers and all the things. I really I won't appreciate say, that. Oh, it's going to be spectacular. I would so love to come, but I, I don't mate. know. I, was, I would so – I'm so, like, excited for you. When does it actually – like officially go ticket sales and everything. Yeah, 100%. Let's do like the proper plug. Okay, so Love tickets it. are on sale for both Belvoir and Queensland. Claire, if you can't come, send people because if we sell out, then maybe you'll come to Melbourne and then you can see it. So that's really? that's going to be that's going to be the broader strategy. Tickets are already on sale. So I think in Queensland, let me check, but I think we open on the 7th of September in Brisbane and then mm-hmm. we are there for four and a half weeks or so and then we come down to Sydney and I think we open on October 12th in Sydney. It's around then and we we close November 10th in Sydney. Yeah, but we're also, I mean, by the time your listeners are hearing this, we've probably announced our cast. And I know that once that happens, it's possible that our tickets might start to disappear, but I can't say why. Um, so if you're listening and you're interested, I would act quick. I would get tickets quickly. And hey, if you see it, I'm in it and I'm there every night and I'm just going to like wipe my neck off, off in two seconds and hang out in the foyer. So if you come say hi, I would love that. That would fill my heart with joy. Oh, and finally, oh, my gosh, I'm about to give you a scoop, Claire. Oh, I love it. Okay. Okay. Shoot, so, Steve. No one knows this, but I have a secret side um, project where I make gifts. I am obsessed with gifts. So specifically, <laughs> you know, in Instagram stories, you can put gifts on your stories. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out in order to get into, so you can upload stuff to Giphy, the website that hosts gifts, but to get on Instagram, you have to go through this whole application process and get approved. And I just got approved. And so I am freshly an Instagram published gift artist. So no. if you, yeah. Really? Yes. So if you're, mate, if you're listening to this, go on to gift, go onto Instagram, go to stories, or you can like message a photo to a friend. And if you go to put a gift sticker in, you want to look for the hashtag fangirls musical one word, and you'll see a whole page of all the gifts I have made that like, and they're not just relevant to the show. They're like gifts that you can use in heaps of context. So one of them says plan my funeral because I'm dead. And another one says pregnant with this. Uh, and another one says literally, and they all, they all are out of the show, but they're also just relevant in general life. So please go forth and use the gifts. 
Oh, I am doing that. I love those things with all of my heart. And I especially love Broad City ones. So I yes. feel like I am going to be on board with your gifts. For I hope you shizzle. like them. Well, I thought I was like, oh, it would be really great if I made these so that when people see the show, they can share about their experience and actually use stuff from the show. But then when I started making the gifts, I was like, these, even if they have nothing to do with the show, these, these are really enjoyable. And frankly, I've, I've needed these gifts. And then what's kind of cool is that I got published on Instagram and I thought, oh, you know, I won't shout about it yet. I'll shout about it when the show's out and, you know, cause that's when it'll be appropriate. But I opened my Instagram, Claire, and all my friends on their stories were using these gifts because they're also tagged. So like plan my funeral because I'm dead is tagged funeral and dead and actually dead and on heaps of different tags. Right. So people yeah. were just finding them. And then I was messaging my friends like, um, I made that on my computer yesterday. And now on Giphy, let me check how many times they've been shared. There's like a little statistic that pops up. It says that today they've been shared 2.7 million times. Holy Moses. Isn't that crazy? That is insane. I that really is so crazy. Oh no, wait, I, I refreshed it. It's 3.6 today. Oh my god. Yeah. Fully recommend if you if you're ever struggling creatively with something, just start a whole new project in a different medium with no stakes, such as gift creation. Oh, my God. That is the heart and soul of this show. That is the heart and soul of the show. Because sometimes also the things that you make like that, that are different or like outside of what you would normally do, birth other things yes. you know, because your brain is like not putting all the pressure on yourself. I completely you know? agree. Completely yeah. agree. I'm staring at one of my gifts, which just says, you give me hand sweat. And it like cycles through <laughs> a little rainbow. And uh, I couldn't agree more. You are so clever. I knew this would be such a fun interview and you did not disappoint. Thank you oh, so wow. much, Inflate. Oh, and also to Yay. anyone listening, at time of recording, my TED Talk is not online. TEDx Talk is not online, but hopefully it will be soon and definitely go and check that out. I, I don't know what I'm going to title it yet. I'm stuck in indecision, but um, my name is Eve Blake with a Y and it's at TEDx Sydney, so it should be easy enough to find. Correct. I will put all the links to your Insta and your website and all those Yay. things in the show notes. And definitely go and follow Eve because she is one to watch. Also, thanks, Claire. That's super nice. Gift maker extraordinaire. Cool. Thanks so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Take care, Claire. Thanks so much for this. You too. Thanks so much, Eve. Bye. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast called Just Make the Thing with me, Claire Tonti, and this week with the indomitable, energetic, very, very extra, Eve Blake. For more from Eve, you can follow her on Instagram at Eve Blake. That's at Y-V-E-B-L-A-K-E. To find tickets for her musical Fangirls, you can head to the link in the show notes below. And for all of her exciting projects, which I'm sure you want to check out, including that musical as well, starring the bad bitch herself, Mary Wollstonecraft, head over to her website. There's lots more information over there. All right, till next week, please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes if you like this show. It means so much to us and share with a friend. This show is all about how to start a thing and keep on making it. It's for those creatives battling away and those people that are secret creatives that haven't started yet, which I really think means 
all of us. So get out there and share. And my name is Claire Twenty. You can follow me on Instagram at Claire Twenty, where I like to share stories. And we have so many more interviews just like this one. Interviews with musician Claire Bowditch, with comedian Will Anderson, and with Luke McGregor and Celia Pacola, who wrote the incredible TV hit Rose Haven. I also have heartfelt conversations with dear friends of mine, including Chanel Luchev, And we run planetbroadcasting.com, which has more podcasts on it that are all Australian made by Aussie creatives. You can hear Podcast Dog in the background. Um, She's got a continuous feud going with the dog next door. And husband man, James, Mr. Sunday Movies himself, and I are starting a new podcast called Suggestible. Please go and subscribe and have a listen. It's all the things that we are watching, listening, and reading during the week. And it's just a great thing to answer that question I get asked all the time. What do you recommend? So that's for you, Suggestible. Okay. As always, thanks for all calling to editing this week's show, and I'll speak to you soon. Go make your bloody thing and focus on the work. Okay, enough. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 